If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 30 uh, to Acts 23 verse 11 this morning. Before we jump in, let's pray. Father, I'm grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come and worship you. Grateful for being able to raise our praises to you in song and pray that now as we open your word, you would incline our hearts to listen, to hear, and to apply all that you have for us here as we look at uh, Paul's life uh, and his imprisonment here in the tail end of Acts. Lord, help us to be wise with what we hear. Help us to apply it to our lives. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, uh, we were in Acts 21, and we read about Paul finally making his way to Jerusalem. We had talked about him spending about a year searching for uh, gifts that were being given by the Macedonian churches. So he's going around to all these different churches. He's collecting this offering to take to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and it ends in him getting to Jerusalem. But on his way there, he was promised by the Holy Spirit and by the prophecies of people around him that he's going to end up in chains as a result of making his way to Jerusalem. And so in Acts 21, we saw that he had arrived there. He told the elders of the church everything that had been happening in, among his ministry uh, with the Gentiles, and everyone rejoices and is extremely glad over everything that God is doing uh, in the world with the gospel. Uh, but it was during this meeting that James and the other elders uh, of Jerusalem, they mentioned that thousands of Jews have come to faith uh, and so that's reason to rejoice as well. But they have also heard that Paul's reputation is suffering. Right? There's rumors going around that Paul, in his time away from Jerusalem and away from being primarily around Jews, that he's drifted towards a Gentile lifestyle. And so it's rumored that he's teaching the Jews in these Gentile areas that they no longer have to follow Moses and that they no longer have to follow some of the Jewish traditions like circumcising their children. Uh, so, and, but these rumors are not true, but in hopes of maintaining unity within the church, the elders asked Paul uh, to take part in a Jewish vow that four other men were taking part in so that it would be a visual reminder among all these Jewish Christians that Paul still holds to Jewish culture. Right? It's going to involve Paul taking part in a purification ritual, which any Jew would have partaken in when he came back from Gentile lands. And then he's going to pay for these people to have their heads shaved so that they can participate in this vow. And his, him paying for it is him affirming it. And so they're hoping that this public uh, display of Jewish culture would tell people that he's still in line with the Jewish uh, faith there. Um, even though Paul didn't need to do any of this uh, and you know, do the fact that one, the rumors aren't true, and two, Paul is now under Christ and does not need to do the ceremonial laws. He still humbles himself and he agrees to take part in this um, to bring unity within the church. And we saw that unfortunately uh, in fulfilling these prophecies that have, were given about him, the plan goes completely awry uh, as Jews from Asia find Paul in the temple and they rile up the Jews in the temple uh, to overtake him. They seize him. And they declare that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against their people, against the law, and against the temple. And 
Along with that, they said that Paul had brought a Gentile, one of the men that he had come from Ephesus with. They said that because they had seen him in town with this man, they assumed that he had brought him into the temple, uh, which is uh, an offense that could lead to death. And so because of all this, it causes a riot in the temple. They drag Paul out. They attempt to beat him to death. And it caused such an uproar in the city that the, the Roman legions are called in to figure out what's going on. And so the commander comes rushing in, snatches Paul out of the grasp of these people that are trying to beat him to death, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And so takes Paul into custody, but before going into the barracks, Paul asks, can I speak to these people? And so Paul speaks in Aramaic, to the people. He gives them his history. He gives them his testimony. Uh, he talks about his zeal for God and the impact of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute the church. And when he tells about this story and he gets to the part where Jesus commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, they don't want to hear it anymore. They had settled down when he started speaking in Aramaic, but as soon as he mentioned going to the Gentiles, they shut him down. Right? And so they begin to call for his death. They said, get rid of this man. And that's a nice way of putting, take him out back and shoot him. They wanted him dead. But at this point, this commander, he still has no idea why the city is in an uproar. Because he couldn't get a straight answer from the crowd. They're arguing back and forth saying it's this and it's that. And he couldn't get a straight answer. And then he's like, okay, well, this guy's going to speak to the crowd. Maybe he'll address it. And he speaks in a language that he can't speak. And so he still has no idea what's going on. And so he decides, all right, my next step is to take this man in here and beat him until he tells me the truth. And so he orders Paul to be scourged. And Paul says, hang on a second, is it legal for you to scourge a man that's a Roman citizen that hasn't been condemned? And so everybody steps away like, whoa, that's a big deal. You don't, you don't scourge a Roman citizen without giving him a fair trial. And that trial has to come out as guilty or else you will take his place in the scourging. And so everybody backs away and it stops that line of thinking really fast. But the commander is still without information. He has no idea why his city is going crazy. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on. Why is Paul being accused by the Jews? And to find this out, the commander comes up with a new idea to try to figure out what all is going on, which brings us to our passage this morning. Acts 22. We're going to start in verse 30. Start and stop. It'll be just this verse for a second. And then we'll go on into Acts 23. So in Acts 22, verse 30, Luke says, The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. So this man is rightly thinking that if anybody has any idea what's going on among the Jews in the city of Jerusalem, it's going to be the Sanhedrin. Right? The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem is like the ultimate supreme court for all of uh, Jewish culture. Right? Each Jewish town or village would have lesser courts that would help settle issues among themselves. Right? But the Sanhedrin that presided in Jerusalem was the uppermost tier of Jewish authority. And nobody overruled the Sanhedrin. The, the, the judicial body was made up of 70 men and the high priest 
And they had so much authority that if they found the king to be breaking God's law, they could put him to death. The Sanhedrin had that much authority. And they could also extend the boundaries of the temple and of Jerusalem if they should so choose. This is how much power these people had. But even with as much authority that the Sanhedrin possesses among Israel, we see here in this verse that currently a Roman commander possesses even more authority than they do. Since Rome had occupied Jerusalem, all of these men, all of these people in authority, they have to bow down to the wishes of Roman authority. And so the commander had the power to demand that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin convene in order to get to, what, to the bottom of what was going on with Paul. So he says, jump, they say how high, and then they have to convene uh, to, to get to the bottom of this. And as you might imagine, right, if the upper level of your kingdom's authority is sitting under an opposing rule and they tell you to do something, it's probably not going to put you in the best of moods. Right? When these people who have their boot on your neck tell you to jump and you have to say how high, it's not going to go well, especially uh, for someone like Paul. Right? A pleasant outcome should not be anticipated in this instance. So the odds of being heard with a fair and impartial ear, it's not likely to happen. And what we're going to see in verses 1 to 10 of Acts 23, this attempt to figure out why the Jews were trying to kill Paul is going to again end in chaos. Like This is just a group of people who are living in chaos. Every time they try to figure something out, they erupt into anger and frustration. Let's look at those verses. Acts chapter 23, verses 1 to 10. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. And said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. Obviously, this is a mess, right? right? Didn't go the way that the commander had hoped it was going to go. He thought, now I'll finally get to the bottom of this and all we see is yet another opportunity for chaos to ensue. But we saw there as Paul starts to give his defense to the Sanhedrin, he begins by saying that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience to this day. Now that might sound a little weird to us, especially if you've read Romans 3, right? Where Paul 
clearly says that there is no one good, no one lives in good conscience. And so what is Paul saying here? Well, he's not saying that he has never done anything wrong and stands before them as a sinless man. What he's saying is that in all that he has done, he's pursued a blameless life. And when he's aware of his sin, he has sought God and repented to maintain that good conscience between him and God and to bring glory to God. Right, so to be sure, we don't get all of that from this verse, right? This one line, we can't get all that there. But we see what I just said in all the rest of the New Testament writings. Paul says over and over again that he does everything in his power to remain in good standing before the Lord. Right? The point that he's trying to make here in this conversation to begin with the Sanhedrin is saying, I'm, I'm not with, I don't have any guilt. I have no reason to fear standing in front of you because I am not a guilty man. Ananias, the high priest, is not happy with this opening remark, so he orders one of the men standing next to him to punch Paul in the mouth. Why would he do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, first off, Ananias doesn't like Paul. There's no one in authority in Jewish culture that likes Paul. Right? They think that Paul is wicked. They think he's a troublemaker. And worst of all, they think he's a blasphemer. So Paul, standing before him, admitting that he has done no wrong whatsoever, caused Ananias to lose his temper. And the second reason he probably hit him is that Ananias is actually a wicked person. Right? According to historical records, Ananias was known for his greed. It's been said that he would go into uh, the temples and he would steal the offerings that were put there for the priests. Now remember, the priests don't work for money. They're given offerings and that's how they live. That's how they buy food. right? But Ananias would go in and he would steal that money and he would indulge himself with what he took. right? He was also known for having a quick temper and for violence, obviously. right? When somebody says something he doesn't like, order somebody to crack him in the jaw. So he's obviously got a bad temper. He's, uh, he leans into violence. And he was known for having pro-Roman sentiments. So again, here you are. You're the upper echelon of Jewish authority. And you kind of lean into that Roman oppression that everybody else is trying to get out from underneath. And so he doesn't really go well for Ananias. The reports are that uh, eventually about 10 years from this time, he's going to be assassinated by Jewish freedom fighters. They're going to see the opportunity, they're going to take it, and they're going to kill him. Uh, and you see God's judgment, just as Paul mentioned, coming down on him. So he's just not a good person. He's just not a good person, which would incline him to going against the law and having Paul struck. And as you can imagine, right, I don't know about you guys, but I get irrationally mad anytime I get hit in the head. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's on purpose or not, but if I take a shot to the head, I'm ir irrationally angry. And so when I think about the idea of you know, Jesus getting punched in the face and Paul getting punched in the face, like it just kind of, that anger wells up in me for them. right? So after being punched in the face, Paul, he's not happy. And then we get a little glimpse of Paul's sinful nature. right? He calls the white the the high priest a whitewashed wall before rightly pointing out that the high priest is judging him according to the law while also breaking the law and having him punched 
right? Just under, as under Roman law, Jewish law says that you can't strike people in the middle of a trial. They have to be condemned before you can do this. And yet, here he is having him punched in the face. And Paul says, God will judge you. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> and so, I mean, we can easily look at that and justify Paul's response. I mean, I feel you, Paul. That would have been the nicest thing I said to that guy that day. Right? I, I feel that desire to strike back. Right? Call him names. Say something else. Say something about his mother. Right? Fight back as you can. Do what you have to do. But remember, we're not supposed to look at Paul as our ultimate example. Now, you guys know I love Paul. Right? As far as biblical heroes go, I... I want to live my life mostly like Paul. But he is not my primary example in Scripture. Paul is a sinner just like us. All right, when we look into the Scriptures, we look at the example that Jesus set who responded with restraint when he was in a similar situation during his trial. When men struck him in the face, when they spit in his face, when they plucked out his beard, when they placed a crown of thorns on his head, he didn't fight back. He didn't revile back. That's how we're supposed to respond in a situation like this. Paul knows this, right? But it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be in the moment and respond out of that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 11, 13, it says, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. You don't call the person that did it a whitewashed wall. Paul knows, knows that. But in the moment, after just being cracked in the face, he responded out of anger. Right? Paul did not bless when he was reviled. Paul did not turn the other cheek. Paul responds out of anger. And it's probably a combination of righteous anger and unrighteous anger. There is a difference. Right? He was righteously angry that the law of God is being disregarded. He's also righteously angry about being struck without reason. And all of that overflowed into an unrighteous response. Right? If he said, why did you hit me? Right? That goes against the very law that you're judging me by. No problems at all. But he called the man a whitewashed wall. Right? So he starts calling names. And as a result, he's rebuked by some of the folks standing, standing nearby. He says, do you dare revile God's high priest? To which Paul then walks back what he said. Right? He responds with, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, if you notice, that wasn't a clear act of repentance, right? He didn't exactly say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, right? He didn't exactly apologize for stepping out of the boundaries of God's law, but he did acknowledge that he was wrong. And he shares from the law, it's Exodus 22:28 that says you're not supposed to revile the leaders that God has placed in front of you. But given the circumstances, though, if we think about this, how is it possible that Paul wouldn't have realized that the man he was speaking to was the high priest? Right? This is going to be a hard guy in this situation to miss. But there are several, uh, several possibilities that commentators offer to answer that question. 
the first is that Paul's been away from Jerusalem for a while and he might not have known that Ananias was the high priest. I find that not very plausible. I mean, given the fact of how ceremoniously that the Jews do everything, I would imagine that the high priest sits in the same spot every time the Sanhedrin convenes. He's probably wearing the same garb every single time the Sanhedrin convenes. And so if you're standing before them, you're going to stand before the high priest, and they're going to put you right in front of this guy. So I find it hard to believe that I just didn't recognize him. I didn't realize that was him. Right? This isn't King Arthur in the round table, right? It's not like that. There's one direction that he needs to be looking, and that's at the high priest. And so the next option might be that he was being sarcastic. Right? I can feel that. Right? That would have been my response. That would have been the reason why I said it. He might have been saying, I didn't know he was the high priest because I would have expected the high priest to act better. You know? Doesn't seem like a high priestly thing for him to do, so I didn't know that was the guy. Thought maybe he was sitting in the wrong seat. Right? He could have doubled down on his response. I personally like that one. But uh, maybe it was in the commotion of this meeting. You know, it's being rushed together by the commander. Maybe there's just a ton of people talking. He wasn't sure which one gave the order to strike him. And when he responded, he just didn't know it was the high priest that had done it. And so had he known, he may have just said what what I said he could have said, which was, that wasn't nice. You shouldn't have done that. But instead, he calls whoever did it a whitewashed wall. Possibility. Number four, it's also possible that Paul's eyesight was failing him. This is one of the things that people think that the thorn in the flesh that God sends to him and he asks for it to go away, that's one of the possibilities that that is, is his eyesight is failing. Right? He talks about in Galatians, he's having to write in large letters. And so people think that possibly his eyesight is failing. So to him, it may have literally looked like a whitewashed wall. Right? Like... You, you whitewashed wall, I can't see your face. You're just a big blur. But, may, but you, you know, God's going to strike you down for that. Um, and if that's the case, he may have literally not known who was speaking to him. No clue. I mean, none of this is confirmable. Uh, but when stuff like this pops up, I, I can't let it go until I come down with at least a couple of su- suggestions. And so I'm just going to offer that to you in case you have the same, uh, same issues with your itchy brain that I do. I can't let it go once I once these questions pop up. But after all of this happens, we see Paul making yet another decision, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. It may have been another less than honorable decision in verse 6. Look again to what he says in verse 6. So he's got the Sanhedrin sitting there. He looks up, realizes it's part Pharisee, it's part Sadducee, and it appears... From that verse that Paul has decided to try to pit these two groups of people against each other in order to distract them from himself. Right? I'm saying that it may have been a less than honorable because I'm not sure what's going on here. I, I feel like we probably aren't getting the entire story of everything that happened here. Um so I mean Paul is in fact partially standing before that group because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead. Right? He does believe in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the entire focus of our faith, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He also believes that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. But that's not the whole reason why he's standing there, is it? 
got a couple of other issues against him that he doesn't bring up in this assembly. Right? So, was it honorable? Was it not? I'm not sure. But as a diversion, it worked well. Right? Nobody can deny that. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and spirits and angels. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. And knowing this, Paul plays their animosity for each other uh, and sides off of one another, and he sides with one of the groups. He sides with the Pharisees. Right? Paul was trained as a Pharisee, so that wasn't a lie. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, so he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees at that time. And so it wasn't a lie, but this does come across as a calculated response in order to distract the attention away from himself, right? Which may or may not be completely above board. I don't fully know how to think about it, right? We've seen the wisdom of Paul utilize his knowledge of the law, both Jew Jewish law and both in Greek law, Roman law, We've seen him use both of them to get himself out of difficult situations. But in those situations, it's usually to show you aren't following the law. This is the law. This is how you're acting. They don't line up and people are like, oh yeah, that's right. And they don't beat him or kill him or do whatever it is that they had planned to do. Right? So we usually see it that one. This one to me feels a little less honorable. Right? He knows how these two people think. He pits them together and all of a sudden... They go at it. Right? It doesn't matter how we feel about it. It's done and it has its desired impact. The two groups, they begin fighting amongst themselves and they completely forget about Paul. Right? They just start going at it. Age-old battle between these two. They start going at it. The commander, though, doesn't forget about Paul. commander sees that things are getting so heated that he fears that Paul is going to be torn apart by these religious leaders in this, it would be like if all of a sudden me and the deacons just get together and we have a dispute and we start throwing hands. And we're like, oh, we've got to get the kids out of here. They're going to tear everything up. And so the commander looks, he sees Paul. He's like, oh no, I need that guy to not be dead. And so he runs in, grabs him again with troops. Sends, once again, sends troops into the midst of Jewish people and pulls Paul out and he takes him back to the barracks. So all of this is for nothing. He still, he's had three opportunities to find out what's going on with Paul and still has no idea why Paul is being pursued by the Jews. No clue. And Paul has to be feeling a little down. Right? Can you imagine? Like, you really are guiltless. Everything that they just accused you of, you haven't done. And you've been beaten nearly to death. You've had your own people turn against you. Right? And then even standing before the Sanhedrin, the people that are supposed to uphold the law of God with as much character as they can, character and honor, and he's gotten none of that. He's got to be down. Well, the following night, Paul gets a little bit of encouragement from the Lord. Look at that in verse 11. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. I mean, it's a short verse. Not a whole lot there. But it should have some impact in Paul's life. I mean, think about, number one, he's standing in the presence of God. right? Not like we're always in the presence of God, but literally standing in God's presence as He appears to him. And so he gets that. 
He also gets the fact that in the midst of all the suffering and persecution, God tells him, have courage. Have courage. He's getting these encouraging words from the Lord. He says it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. So Paul actually gets a glimpse of the future. Right? It's not much of a glimpse, but he knows that he's going to Rome. Right? He's going to testify in Rome. That means that anything that might possibly stand in his way on his way to Rome cannot possibly pass. Right? God is sovereign. God says it is up to you to testify about me before Rome. And so guess what's going to happen? Paul is going to testify about God before Rome. And that's how we're left. Alright, so what do we do with this? Now, how do we apply everything that we have seen in these 12 short verses? 13 short verses, however many it is. Well, I've got four application points uh, that I want to address from, from this that we can get from Paul. Now, number one, be respectful to those who God has allowed to be in authority over you. Right, this is not one that many people are going to enjoy. But because of the polarization in our country, our elected officials rarely meet in the middle to decide what's best for our country anymore. Do y'all agree with that? One side or the other, typically. Right? The power in Washington swings one political party to the other political party, back and forth. And it's getting to the point now where elected officials, they rarely speak to the country as a whole and they speak directly to their party. Right? When the tide turns, the next elected official directs everything back to their particular political party. And so that means that every two to four to eight years, depending on how the elections go, there is a large group of people in our country that is unhappy with the leadership of our country. Because right? it's about half, 50-50. And so we are prone to vocalizing our disdain for our political leaders. And social media has made it infinitely worse. Because not only can we just affect the minds of the people that we're speaking to together in the room that we're in or on the phone with, now we can broadcast that to thousands of people online. Every thought that we might possibly have about a political leader. But as believers in Christ, we should stand out among the other people around us by disagreeing in a way that shows while we might, may not agree with the decisions that are being made, no matter which political party you're in, right? we honor God's sovereignty by respecting the office that our elected officials hold, even if we don't personally like the person that's in the office or the policies that they're creating. All right, the Apostle Paul has this to say in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So God puts all these people in place. Now sometimes that judgment might be on us, right? He may put them in place because... We have sinned and are not doing what we're supposed to do. And so it's not for the betterment of our country. But one way or another, God puts these people in those positions. And verse 7 of Romans 13 says, Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those who you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe 
Tolls, respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. And while we may not honor the person that's holding the position of president, vice president, whatever else, pick your senator, pick your governor, whoever it may be, even though you may not honor those people, you are still to honor the position that they hold. Right? The Apostle Peter also speaks about this in 1 Peter 2, 13-17. He says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Do you know what emperor he's talking about right then? Nero. Do you know what Nero did to Christians? He would douse them in oil and set them on fire on spikes to light up his garden while he was having garden parties. And he tells the believers of that time to honor the emperor. Show him the respect that he is owed. Now, this does not mean that we go along to get along. All right? We're just not, we don't just roll over and take whatever's there. Right? Even though God expects us to respect our governing authorities, He also expects our governing authorities to act in ways that follow His law. Right? And when that doesn't happen, we can and we should speak out against those things. The things that go against our faith, the things that go against our conviction, we speak out about those things. But in our disagreement, we should never dishonor the people in those positions. So I don't care how you feel about Donald Trump. I don't care how you feel about Joe Biden. Right? Things like orange man bad or let's go Brandon should never come out of the mouth of a believer. Period. You are being dishonoring to those that God has placed in authority above us. Paul has a moment where he disrespects the, the high priest. Whether he meant to or not remains to be seen. But he had a moment where he disrespected them and he apologized in a way for what he has done. He acknowledged that what he did was wrong. And this is how we should be. We should live as an example. We should show people how, that they, how they should conduct themselves among a world that's looking at us to be different. Right? If, if people are out there disrespecting the president, the vice president, senators, governor, whoever, and we're standing there right there shaking our fists and saying the exact same thing, what sets us apart? What, what difference would it make if they came into this church if we're spewing the same nonsense from this pulpit as they're hearing from every Fox News, CNN, whoever, who cares? It's all the same. People bad-mouthing one another every step of the way. This is not how Christians are supposed to act. So number one, respect your authorities. Number two, stand firm in the face of persecution. This has been a running theme throughout the ministry of Paul as we've been going through the book of Acts. We should not be surprised if we are persecuted for our faith. All right, the Scripture is absolutely clear over and over again that if we are faithful to Christ, the world will hate us. 
Why aren't you chanting along next to me about this president that we all hate? God doesn't hate them. That's a person that's made in the image of God. What? Get away from me, idiot. You know, like, we should not be surprised when we are persecuted for our faith, when we stand out and look different for our faith. Knowing that it's coming doesn't alleviate the difficulty. It's hard to be persecuted. We wouldn't know that because we've never really been persecuted in our culture, not yet. But persecution is never easy. It's never pleasant. But the reward for standing firm in our faith is worth infinitely more than going along with the world so that our life is easier right now. We must consider. We must live our life as though eternity awaits. And it does. Who would be so foolish as to give up an eternity with Christ and all the rewards that are promised to us for our faithfulness so that we wouldn't have to suffer for what? 60 years? 70 years? 80 years? The Bible calls our life a mist. Calls it a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And then after that, what do you have left? Well, when our life is over, our suffering goes with it. If we are in Christ, we are promised nothing but joy from that point forward. Right, so stand firm in Christ. Remember that an eternity awaits you. Don't give up. Don't give in. Number three. Remember these four things about God. Number one, He's always with His people. Always. Now, we might not get to see Him in the same way that Paul got to see Him. We may not see Him face to face. But He is always there. He, is, he has never left you alone. It does not matter what you are going through. You are always in front of the Lord. And He's always there with you. Number uh, B, two, He knows all that you're going through. Jesus understands every bit of suffering that we have ever experienced and more. Right, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 16, uh, 14 to 16 says, Therefore, we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of, throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus knows. He knows what you're dealing with. You can take everything that you're going through, place it at His feet, and it's not like He's, I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this? He suffered as you've suffered. You ever been betrayed? He's been betrayed. You ever been hit in the mouth? He's been hit in the mouth. Right? You ever been killed? No? Okay, well, He's got one up on you then. But He knows. He knows what you're going through. See, He is in control. Absolutely nothing happens to us that is outside of God's control. Like we're always wondering if something just happened to fall through the cracks, like it slipped through God's fingers, like it didn't get shuffled on it, it got shuffled in on the papers on His desk, and He doesn't realize, oh, well, I'm sorry, did that hit you? I didn't mean for that to happen. Right? God is in control. Isaiah 46, 8-10 says, Remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors, 
Remember what happened long ago, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place, and I will do my will. Right? Nothing slips out of his fingers. Right? Romans 8 says that God is using all things to work together for the good of those who love him and whom he loves. Right? And that good is transforming us into the image of Christ. Now the moment hurts. The moment is terrible. The pain that we experience sometimes is it's not meant to be that way. But God uses each one of those moments to shape us to be more and more like Jesus. And he controls it all. He knows what we need. And lastly there, remember, God loves us. He loves us. Romans 8 38 through 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anybody? Amen? Anybody happy about that? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. God loved us so much that He was not content leaving us lost in our sin. He sends the second person of the Godhead into our world so that He could die a death that we deserve after living a perfect life to be brutally beaten, to be betrayed, to, have, to be abandoned. Jesus does all of that so He can take the wrath that we deserve and after it's all over and He rises again from the grave, He offers us His righteousness. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us so much that He was not willing to spend eternity without us. He says, here, here's my righteousness. Give me the wrath that you deserve. I will take that. You take my righteousness. Why? Because I love you. And nothing can separate us from that love. doesn't matter how hard your life is. You are still firmly rooted in the hand of God because He loves you. He loves you. Now, if that doesn't make you walk out of here with a completely different mindset than what you had when you walked in, as I would recommend during this last song, come and pray for a minute. All right, God is in control of your life. He loves you so, so much. I mean, that should make a difference in your heart. And if it has, and you need to talk about that difference, come talk to me. I'm up here after the service waiting to hear from you. All right? Let's pray together. Father, it's my great joy to preach your word. To see in it the lives of these men and women who have been immortalized in your word that we can see, we can emulate. Sometimes we go the other direction. We don't want to emulate. But there is truth in here that applies to our life in meaningful ways. And it doesn't matter what we read or how long it ta it's been since this took place. It's still true because your word is true. And because your word is true, Lord, we know that we have promises. We have promises that life will be hard. We have promises that if we are faithful to honor you, that our life will be difficult. But we also have promises that you are with us 
forever. That you love us and that nothing can take us out of your hand. So I pray that we would lean into those promises here today, Lord. If we're struggling, that we would lean into the promise that you're with us. That you love us. That you know what's going on. Right? Lord, if we're here today and we are experiencing our version of persecution, Lord, I pray that people would hold fast. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would now be preparing our hearts for the day when real persecution comes. When people are dragged out of this place for singing praises to your name, I pray that we'll be ready. I pray that we are so rooted in your love that we will take on whatever it is that you have for us in the future. And that we would recognize that it shapes us into the image of Christ. And I pray that we would strive for that in every aspect of our life. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.